0: If you have a Bible, I want to ask you to take it out, open to the very last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, find Revelation chapter 21. Uh, for those who maybe came in uh, late in the service, I'll just remind you that we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, in the middle of the sermon. And so if you would like to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, the Elements are available in the back of the room on either side. Uh, We're not going to be coming around to pass those out, but you're more than welcome to go grab those and be ready for the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. This morning is not a traditional Christmas sermon. Usually you would look at the Gospel of Matthew, or maybe you would look at the Gospel of Luke. Maybe you would look at a prophecy from the Old Testament that speaks to the birth of Jesus. This morning we find ourselves in the book of Revelation chapter 21, and that's because this year, as a church, we've been reading through the New Testament. We started in January, we found our way here to the end of the year, and each week we've been preaching on Sundays and Wednesdays from the window of chapters that you've been reading on your own. So if you started at the beginning of the year and you have stayed with your reading plan all throughout 2022... You've read for 52 weeks, five chapters a week. So you've read 260 chapters in the New Testament. You've made it all the way through the New Testament. If, on the offhand chance, that you're a little bit behind. The calendar has been kind to you this year, the way the Sundays fell, and you have a few days to catch up. If, some of you, I doubt that this is true for any of you, but if you are so far behind that you cannot catch up in a week, a new year's coming, and you can set a new goal in 2023. And my encouragement to you, my challenge to you is that you think now about what your plan might be for the new year reading God's Word. Maybe it would be reading through the New Testament. You could take the plan we used this year, and you could go back through it. Maybe you would want to read the entire Bible. There's lots of plans available online, special Bibles with uh, the format laid out. and makes it easy for you to read through the Scriptures. Maybe you would pick a book of the Bible and say, I want to study this particular book, and I want to read through this book. Uh, But in the new year, I'm encouraging you to be faithful in reading God's Word. This morning, we're going to read Revelation chapter 21. Our passage is verse 1 to verse 8. We're going to start by reading these verses, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless the reading of His Word. Revelation 21, verse 1. The Bible says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride which is the second death. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we've gathered together as your people this morning to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the word became flesh, that he dwelt among us. We're thankful that Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. We're thankful that in the fullness of time you sent forth your son to be born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. We thank you that in Jesus we have the hope of eternal life and as we look at this passage in Revelation 21 we pray that we this morning would be mindful that the birth of Jesus then moved to the life of Jesus, a life of perfect obedience, it moved to the cross where Jesus died for sinners like us. That Jesus was raised from the dead that he is now seated at the right hand of the throne in heaven, and that he has promised to come back for his people. Father, Christmas leads us to the hope of Revelation 21, and so this morning as we've read from the book of Revelation, as we talk about this book, as we try to apply it to our lives, we pray that you would add the blessing that is promised to those who read this book, who hear this book, and who keep this book. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We spent several weeks in the book of Revelation and we have been working off of an outline of the book. I've given it to you several weeks now. It's from an Old Testament Hebrew scholar named Peter Gentry. Gentry says the book of Revelation is essentially a bookended with a prologue or an introduction and an epilogue and ending. And then in the middle there are seven sevens. And I've modified Gentry's outline to include chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 and 5 go together, and those two chapters serve as the foundational vision in the entire book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 4, we meet the one who sits on the throne, and we learn that he is holy, holy, holy. And then we move to Revelation chapter 5, and we meet not only the one who sits on the throne, but we meet the Lamb. And those two characters show up together throughout the book of Revelation. The one who sits on the throne and the lamb. They're almost always together. And we read in Revelation 5 that this lamb who was slain is worthy to take the scroll of history and to begin to unfold God's plans for life on earth in between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Now, the rest of the book, I think Gentry is on point, is made up of seven sevens. And so you can see them on the screen. You can see it on your handout. Seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven visions of conflict. We spent the last two Sundays talking about uh, parts of Revelation 12 and all of Revelation 13. There's seven bowls. There's seven visions of victory. And then you come to seven visions of the end, which is where we find ourselves this morning, also on your notes and also on your handout, I've provided a breakdown of this last seven, the seventh seven, Revelation 21 to 22:5. These are the sevens that make up the seventh seven. There's the thousand years. Theologians call this the millennium. I know there's lots of questions about the millennium and how that fits into end times events. We're going to pass over those this morning. There's a lake of fire, a great white throne. And then you notice in italics, the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then you notice in verse 2, he says again that he saw. So he's moving on again and he sees a new Jerusalem the bride, in the river of life. Just a couple of observations about this last section of sevens as you try to make sense of the end of the Bible. Notice that the middle seven, the fourth one, I have in italics and it's just one verse. It gives you the big idea of this final grouping of sevens. This final grouping, visions of the end, is all about the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the first three sevens the thousand years, the lake of fire, and the great white throne all lead up to the new heaven and the new earth. How do we get to the new heaven and the new earth of Revelation 21 verse 1? The last three of the sevens, the new Jerusalem, the bride, and the river of life all explain how we're to think about and be excited for and anticipate the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the first three on that list all focus on judgment. The focus and the emphasis in the first three of these sevens is on judgment. The focus and the emphasis of the last three in this seven is on salvation. However, I've singled out one verse in each of these last three. Revelation 21.8, Revelation 21.27, go back one more time, and Revelation 22.3. Each of those verses is a warning about judgment, a warning about judgment. So in 21.8, there's a warning towards unrepentant sinners, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. In 21.27, it says nothing unclean will enter the new heavens and the new earth, and in 22.3, it says nothing accursed will enter the new heavens and the new earth. So you end with this hope of salvation, but even in the hope of salvation, there's three warnings. Unrepentant sinners will not be there. Nothing unclean will be there, and nothing accursed will be there. And I just want to pause before we get to our particular passage and say a quick word about judgment judgment. If you've read through the book of Revelation, you know that judgment is a major theme in the book of Revelation. If you've read the New Testament with us this year and you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus has an awful lot to say about judgment. If you've read the Bible cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, you know that the entire Bible has a lot to say about judgment. And in our passage, which is a beautiful passage, it ends with a warning of judgment. And it's such a strong warning that even this week as I prepared this sermon, I found myself thinking, maybe we'll just talk about verse 1 to 7. Maybe I won't read verse 8 and they'll pretend like it's not there and we'll all pretend like it's not there. But it's not an unusual verse in the book of Revelation, nor is it unusual in the New Testament or the the broader scope of Scripture. This is what the verse says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You understand that list is not exhaustive, but it's representative. If you find yourself struggling with a particular sin that's not on that list, this is not a pass for you. That's not the totality of sins that will send you to the lake of fire in the end. It's a representative list of sin. And what John is saying in the book of Revelation in context is those who dwell on the earth are unrepentant. They're unbelievers and they're unrepentant. They refuse to agree with God about their sin. They refuse to turn from their sin. And in the end, their portion will not be the new heavens and the new earth. With the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Now, listen, in the abstract, for church going people, it's easy to affirm that. We're Bible believing people. We submit our beliefs and our lives to the authority of Scripture. So, in the abstract, it's easy to say, Yes, I believe that. Let me tell you where it's hard it's when you think about people that you know and that you love who are unrepentant in their sin and have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus. That's where people begin to wrestle with this. It's usually not in the abstract. It's usually in the concrete. In real life with people that you know who are living in unrepentant, unremorseful, unconfessed sin... And they'll have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way. That's where it's hard to think about what the Bible says about judgment. Just for example, Revelation chapter six has a vision of glorified saints in heaven praying and asking God a question. And the question is, how long, how long, until you, God, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are praying for God's vengeance to be meted out. And in the abstract, it's one thing to read Revelation 6 and say, okay, that seems like a good prayer. God does not rebuke them for that prayer. In the concrete, it's hard to reckon with the fact that you and I know people and we care about people who are unrepentant in their sin and have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a major theme in the book of Revelation. We haven't talked about it over the last several weeks. It's not something we often talk about at Christmas, but it's in our text this morning. And so I want to give you just a few very, very quick thoughts as you try to process what the Bible says, what the New Testament says, what the book of Revelation says about judgment. The first is this. The God of heaven, the Bible says, is sovereign, holy, true that's right out of Revelation 6 which I quoted a moment ago where the, the glorified Saints are praying how long until vengeance comes they acknowledge God as sovereign holy and true and what I'm saying to you is that when God pours out his judgment on those who dwell on the earth it is not a divine temper tantrum it's not God flying off the handle it's measured It's thought out, it's appropriate, He is sovereign, He is holy, and He is true. Secondly, I would remind you that human beings are finite. We are really small. And our capacity for understanding things like, I don't know, say governing the moral compass of the universe is very limited. And I would just suggest to you that In comparison to the holy, holy God and the lamb who was worthy to take the scroll, you and I are entirely inadequate to question how he governs the universe. Thirdly, we live in the United States. That means that whether you realize it or not, you are culturally conditioned to think about God as a cosmic therapist slash genie. That is baked into the cake in the United States of America. How the average American thinks about God when they think about God. He's a therapist. He's there to make me feel better about myself and my situation. He's a genie. He's there to do what I ask him to do. And I would simply submit to you that is not the view of God in the Bible. That is not the view of God in the New Testament. And it is most certainly not the view of God in the book of Revelation. Fourthly when you think about the gravity and the weight of evil in the world. I'm talking about personal evil that you've experienced. I'm talking about wide-scale societal evil that takes place all over the world every single day. I'm talking about individuals committing evil acts. I'm talking about institutional evil. I'm talking about the full weight of evil in the world. When you really allow that to settle on you, I don't think that you want there to be a God who would just sweep it all under the rug. I believe as a human being made in God's image, there is something in your heart, God-given, built in, that longs for justice. That's why we want the good guys to win in a movie. We want justice to be done. As finite human beings, we may not have the best idea about what that justice ought to look like, but we have an innate longing For justice. So that's a lot of introduction, but it's an important theme in the book of Revelation, and it's something that's in our passage in verse 8, and we dare not skip it this morning. So now let's talk about verse 1 to verse 7. Let me give you the big idea of our passage. It's very simple. In the end, God will make all things new. In the end, God will make all things new. Look at Revelation 21.5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making... All things new. The question we aim to answer this morning is what will be made new? What does John include in this list? He's gonna make all things new. Let's get specific and concrete. What is it that will be made new? I wish I had seven answers for you, but I have six. Seven seems like a better number, but six is the number that are presented in the passage. So six answers to this question, what will be made new in the end? Number one, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. Look at verse one. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Again, verse 5. The one who was seated on the throne said, I'm making all things new. He is making all things new. A new heaven and a new earth. In verse 1, he says that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I do not think that you are to imagine an Avengers, Thanos type scene where... God's going to snap his fingers, and everything that he's created is going to simply cease to exist, just disappear. I don't think that's what John is trying to describe. I think what John is trying to describe here at the end of the book of Revelation is something more akin to what happened to the world in the flood. The Bible talks about God destroying the world with a flood. It doesn't mean that it all ceased to exist and went away and something new came into existence but it does mean that something completely cataclysmic overtook the earth so that what came out on the other side was in a sense new. And I think when you read 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Peter 3 what Paul and Peter say about the end is that in the end God will not destroy the world again with water but he will destroy the world with fire. I know you have a lot of questions about what that's going to be like. I don't have a lot of answers other than to say to you at the end there will be some sort of destruction and what God has created will come out on the other side in a sense new, purified, free from sin and different in some ways than what we experience now. And I just want to point out to you that John says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And I think this is really good news for some of you, because some of you are secretly terrified by the prospect of eternity as a spirit on a cloud with a harp and a never-ending choir rehearsal. It terrifies you. You love Jake Wood. You love him, and you think he's great. You don't want to listen to him for eternity. You don't, and you're thinking to yourself, eternity, forever, we're just going to be there and floating around? I don't even know how to play the harp. I guess I have a long time to learn how to play it. I don't know. We're going to be there. It's never going to end. We're just going to sing it over and over and over again. And I think what the Bible's describing to you in this last seven, Revelation 20, is that there will be a physical resurrection in the end, and you get a new body. You don't get it when you die, but you get it when the Lord Jesus comes back. Just like the Lord Jesus was raised Physically, bodily from the dead is the first fruits, so his people will receive a resurrection body, and you will live on a new earth, and you will have eternity to sing and to explore the new heavens. A new heavens and a new earth. Secondly, there will be a new peace. A new peace. The end of verse one says, The sea was no more. Throughout the Old Testament, The sea is used as an image of chaos and death and destruction. The Hebrews were not seafaring people. They made a few attempts at building boats and going out on the oceans and they all ended terribly. The Hebrews did not like the sea and many times in poetic writing when they wanted to talk about something being chaotic, uncontrollable, destructive, deadly, they described it in terms of the sea. I think when you read this statement, the sea is no more, this is one of the images in Revelation that you don't take literally, but you do take seriously. You don't take it literally because earlier in chapter 3 and 4, excuse me, chapter 4, it talks about a sea of glass before the throne. John sees a sea of glass. Here he's saying the sea is no more, and what he's saying is chaos, death, Destruction is all gone. None of those things are present in the new creation. Instead, there's what the Old Testament writers would call shalom, peace, wholeness, everything being the way God intends it to be, nothing being out of place and nothing being out of control, but everything being the way that God intends for it to be. Thirdly, Revelation says there will be a new city. Look at verse 2. He sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you jump down to verse 9, you read it again. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me, and he said, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You remember... This is not all sequential in nature. These are visions that John experiences. Seeing the same thing from a different perspective. So it's not describing Jerusalem coming down twice. It's just saying John saw it happen twice. And he's describing it in two different ways. Now, I don't know how you all feel about living in the city or a suburb or a rural area or the country. But I'm just saying to you that the Bible begins with human beings living in a garden. It ends with human beings living in a city. And that city is described in Revelation 21, verse 9 through 27. It's an amazing city. No, I don't think you should take all of those images literally, but I do think you should take them seriously. Particularly the promise of verse 22 that says, There is no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's the best part of the city. Is that God is there. The one who is holy, holy, holy. And the Lamb, the one who is worthy. They are there in this city. Which brings us to the next truth I want you to see. There will be a new relationship. A new relationship. Revelation 21.3 I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He says it again in verse 7, To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who endures, he will have this heritage, I will be his God, and he will be my son. God living together with his people is better than Eden. It's better than the tabernacle. It's better than the people moving into the promised land, what we often call the holy land. It's better than the temple. This is God living together with his people. He will be their God and they will be his people. And if you've read through the book of Revelation up to this point, you understand the basis for this new relationship. You understand what the book means when it talks about to those who overcome. It's not saying if you're really, really good, you won't get coal in your stocking. It's not saying if you can be obedient enough, you might sneak into this city and be with God. What is the basis for this relationship? Well, the book of Revelation tells us what the basis of this relationship is. Revelation 1 7, it says that Jesus has freed us from from our sins by his blood. That's the only way that you can be freed from your sins. It's the blood of Jesus. Revelation 5 9 says that Jesus ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He shed his blood to ransom people from the earth for God. He says this in Revelation 7. This multitude in Revelation 7, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's not some kind of laundry trick. That's a theological truth. The only way that you can be made white is to be washed in the blood of Jesus. Revelation 12, 11, they overcome, they conquer by the blood of the Lamb when we gather together as the people of God to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the basis upon which we come before God is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that Jesus bore our sins in His body on the tree, and He ransomed us not with money, silver, gold, dollars, euros, but with His own blood, and He died like a lamb without spot or blemish. This morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've obeyed His command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate with us. If you have the elements, I'll ask that you take those. You can open the side that has the bread. And as we take of the bread, we'll read from 1 Peter chapter 2. It says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You can open the side that has the cup. Again, we'll read from 1 Peter, this time chapter 1, verse 18 and verse 19. The Bible says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Two more truths that I want you to see from this passage. The fifth one is this. There will be a new joy. A new joy. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. When you live in a fallen world like we do it's really hard for you to imagine what this joy will be like when you think about people that you know and you care about who are unrepentant in their sin and have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ it's hard to imagine how eternity could be an experience with no mourning or crying or pain or no tears I realize when you come to a verse like this you have a lot of questions I don't have a lot of answers other than to say to you that the joy you will experience in the new heaven and the new earth will be unlike anything you've ever experienced in this world. I think it's what Jesus is talking about when he says this in John fifteen 11. We'll put the verse up on the screen. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's two amazing statements in that verse. One is that the joy of the Lord Jesus, which is an eternal, infinite, triune joy, will be in His people. And secondly is that your joy will be full. It will be full. And I think what Jesus is talking about in John fifteen eleven is the same thing you're reading about in Revelation 21, verse 4. I think it's what we sing about at Christmas when we sing Joy to the World. I just remind you of the lyrics we sang earlier. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. There will be new joy, and lastly, there will be new life. New life. Verse 6 It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Let me just give you the 30,000 foot takeaway from Revelation 21, from the book of Revelation, from the New Testament, from the entire Bible. Everyone who is born will die. The Bible's clear about that. Even if you don't believe the Bible to be true, you know that this is true from human history and experience. All who are born die. One of one. Die. Unless the Lord Jesus comes back during your lifetime at some point you will die. But here's what Revelation 21 with the book of Revelation with the whole New Testament, what the Bible is telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are only born once, you will die twice. But if by God's grace you're born twice, you'll only die once. If you're only born once, only born physically, the Bible would describe that as being born in sin. The Bible says you will die twice. You will die physically and you will die spiritually, eternally. But if by the grace of God and the work of His Holy Spirit, you are born again, you're born physically, and then you're born again spiritually, Jesus talks about this in John 3, if you're born twice, the Bible says you have hope that you will only die once. You will die physically, but you will live forever. You will live with new joy, you'll live with a new relationship. One day you'll live in this new city with a new peace and a new heaven and a new earth.